You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 10 to 15, but I want to read from verse 7. It's on page 1163. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And we're going to look at these words. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Now our society, um, if there's one word that sums up the mantra and the shibboleth of our society, it's equality. For many years, the people of Scotland were polled about same-sex marriage and they said they were against it. But change the wording to equal marriage and very quickly it came that people were for it because who's going to be against equality? Many of you who are in jobs, in businesses, in schools, in the NHS, in colleges and universities, every single one of them has an equality policy. And I went through this week and looked at a lot of them. They're all basically the same. Uh, A huge amount of waffle, but it's there. And if you misbehave yourself, you'll be sent for equality and diversity training. Now, I never got that in the Free Church College, now Edinburgh Theological Seminary, Uh, but (laughs) I, maybe, who knows? I picked this up off, um, this is the uh, NHS. Equality is ensuring individuals or groups of individuals are treated fairly and equally and no less favorably specific to their needs, including areas of race, gender, disability, religion or belief, sexual orientation and age. Promoting equality should remove discrimination on all of the aforementioned areas. And it's now the law. There's a, a 19, uh, sorry, 2010 Equality Act, which has nine protected characteristics, age, disability, gender reassignment, pregnancy and maternity, race, including ethnic or national origins, color or nationality, religion or belief, including lack of belief, sex, sexual orientation, marriage, and civil partnership. Now, here's the Bible talking about equality, and it's very important that we understand and and get this because it is such a shibboleth, such a a key test in our culture, and it affects so many of us in our work. 
Now, the first thing I want to say is, as we introduce this, is don't automatically dismiss it. There's a lot of good in this, and yet there are big, big gaps. Equality of opportunity, you'll know what it doesn't mention. I think these are laws drawn up by the rich and powerful. The two things it doesn't mention, wealth and power. Not equality of money, which is a huge thing in terms of opportunity, and not equality of fame, and not equality of power, which kind of, to my mind, negates a lot of the rest of it. Of course, we want people of different backgrounds, different ages, uh, different races, different religions to be treated fairly. But what does that mean? Not everyone is the same. Not everyone has the same abilities. Uh, picture, if you can, this ridiculous picture. Imagine that I was running against Usain Bolt in the Commonwealth Games. It's not equal. It's not fair. Basically, in the 100 meters, he should give me a 99-meter start, and then, then I would have a chance. Go Parents who have a great deal of money can buy their children a better education and a better start in life in some ways. Or take the Commonwealth Games. Why does India, with more than half the Commonwealth, a billion people, why is it below Scotland in the medals table? Is it because us poor wee nation, are we better? Are we better athletes? Are we better runners? Are we better weightlifters? We're probably definitely better bowls players. Um, but why? Because it's not equal. They don't have the same facilities, the same personal trainers, the same government commitments and so on. It's not equal. Or take my particular sport, football. Um, Dundee are going to do really well this season. We are going to, you know, we are going to win. Here's my prediction. We're going to win 10 games in a row. And then what's going to happen is I, Celtic or Rangers or someone is going to come and buy our best players and an English club is going to go and take our manager just because they can. It's not equal. There's no equal competition in football. Well, you can think of many, many different examples in which our society talks about equality, but it's not there. So it's not really quite as simple. You have to think about what it involves. Also, our culture's view of equality means that some people are discriminated against. So, for example, I'm a Bible-believing Christian who would uphold Jesus' teaching about marriage. I'm automatically excluded from many areas of modern life. George Orwell, in his infamous novel, uh, 1984, foresaw this. Oh, sorry, Animal Farm. All pigs are equal, but some are more equal than others. I had an article this week in The Scotsman, which was basically arguing Jesus is alive, Jesus is risen. Uh, Jesus is risen. I can't believe this, but this, this has actually happened. Somebody is making a complaint to the Charities Commission that what I said was against charities law because it wasn't equal. Because what about those who believe that Jesus isn't risen? And I shouldn't be allowed to write that as a charity. Extraordinary. But that's the way that our society is going. Now, I've said all that because I want to show you that as the, we've got in the Word of God before us, the Bible has a different understanding of equality, which is far more real. And actually, our modern Western liberal notion of equality with the good things that come with it, and there are good things, actually stems from Christianity. 
And I want you to see that as we look at this, what the Christian teaching is and how if we go away from the Christian teaching, we're going to end up with a less equal society. So here's where the Christian teaching begins. And it's the bedrock of it. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and of the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So man, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All human beings are created in the image of God, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. That has enormous implications. Now, here's the thing. Before Judaism and Christianity, people didn't believe that. The Greeks, the Romans, and the pagans did not believe that. They believed that some people were born superior. Men were generally better. The rich were self-evidently blessed. Some people were born to be slave owners. Some people were born to be slaves. They believed in fate. Some were born to be kings. Some were born to be servants. And Christianity came along and changed all of that. And it took centuries to change it in Europe. But it's so deeply ingrained in European culture, European art, European society. And across through Europe, of course, it went with the Europeans who went to the United States, who in probably one of the most wonderful sentences in the English language, out with the Bible, the American Declaration of Independence has this, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator. They have a creator, they're created equal. That's actually not self-evident. If you don't have a Christian worldview, it's not self-evident at all. And as, as I say, it has huge implications. I walked down to the church this morning, and uh, as I got into the center of town, uh, there was a woman coming up, and she was just, she could hardly walk. She was like that, just absolutely drowned in her own urine. Her face was battered. She was, she could, she was just just a sorry specimen of humanity. And I tell you, as a non-Christian, I think that I would probably look at her and go, what are you doing? What are you, who do you, you know, just, that's, you're horrible. But as a Christian, I looked at her and thought, it, I felt just immensely sad. You are somebody who is made in the image of God and you are abusing and you are destroying yourself. You are destroying God's image. In our culture, when we lose the root, I am certain that we will lose the fruit. I am certain that we will get to a stage where we say, a disabled child is not worth as much as a non-disabled child. You know the horrendous story just now, don't you, of in Thailand, of the Australian couple who paid a surrogate Thai woman to have twins. One of the twins has got Down syndrome. So they asked her to abort the baby. She refused because of her Buddhism. And so they came and they took away the one twin and they left her with the disabled twin with a heart condition and everything else. What does that say to that, that child? There are three children aborted every day because they've got Down syndrome in the United Kingdom. 
What about older people? Some people say, well, my life is not worth living. And as we progress, inverted commas, towards euthanasia, what about the old person who feels useless and worthless and feels that their inheritance is being wasted away on health care and they'd rather leave it to their kids? And so they request euthanasia. Our society is becoming less equal. There's less social mobility, more nepotism, more discrimination in many areas, a greater gap between rich and poor. The irony is that the rich and the powerful are using the equality doctrine, minus wealth, minus actually some of the important stuff, to maintain their own wealth and power. Now, what do we as Christians have? We have a teaching that we can have, but also we can model the alternative. And what we're looking at this morning is how we handle the one thing our society is refusing to deal with properly, how we handle our money and the stuff that we buy with money, how we give. In our culture, I think giving largely operates on two principles. Involuntary giving, someone else will pay, so, you know, tax people, um, we are, Jesus says, we pay our taxes. But the idea is always, oh, well, if we tax them, let's tax the rich more and then everything will be more equal. That may or may not be true. But when I hear a rich person say that, I, my answer to them is always just simply to say, do you know that you can give more? HMRC allows you to give more in tax. Did you know that? Do you know that you can give to the government? If you feel, go ahead and do that. But people don't. Or, there's another principle, the mega-rich get to show off in their charitable giving. You have lots of money, so you set up your own foundation. You come and you present checks, and you get honored, and you get fated. Giving is a form of showing off. Or, often we have to be entertained or manipulated into giving. And sometimes these principles come into the church, but what we're looking at is the New Testament principles that we should apply, that if we did apply them, it would make a massive difference to our churches and to our collective witness in the culture. 2 Corinthians 10 onwards. Here is my advice about what's best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. First principle, our giving has to be willing. He's saying to the Corinthians, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you gave and uh, you, last year you gave and you were the first to do so. Now he's saying, keep it going. Keep the desire there, fulfill that desire. Our desire, our willingness is important to God. He loves a cheerful giver. We can be moved by guilt or we can be emotionally manipulated. We can be compelled by things outside. But the church should not do that. It should be from the promptings of our own minds and our own hearts, the Holy Spirit working within us. And that is very, very, very important. And it would really, really help if we uh, in the Christian church, those of us who are believers, we thought about that. Give willingly. Don't give reluctantly. The principle earlier on is, Paul says, I want you to give yourself, first of all, to Jesus Christ. 
He says you give what you have decided in your heart to give. Because giving is not ultimately a matter of the wallet or the bank account. Giving is a matter of the heart. Now, I know that there are some people who instantly will have a sense of relief. They'll go, that's good. I don't have to give. Um, If you were thinking about becoming a member in this church, I know sometimes people ask me this. What's your policy on giving? And I say, well, up to a certain percentage, up to 10,000 pounds a year, we take 10%, and then 20,000 pounds, we take 20%. You know, no, we don't do that. We, I haven't a clue how much anybody gives except myself. The treasurer does for income tax purposes, if you, but I don't know. I haven't a clue. And we don't, the, the deacon's court don't know. Because we don't say to people, right, this is what you've got to give. We don't have a list. There are, there are, there are churches, believe it or not, that do this. That put up, so-and-so put up on the screen, so-and-so gave, so-and-so gave, so-and-so gave. I suspect it might increase our givings. It would also decrease our membership, I suspect. Um, that's not the principle. Giving is a matter of the heart. But if you have a sense of relief and say, well, that's a relief, I don't have to give. No, you don't. You could come to this church and not give a single penny. But doesn't that say something about your heart? Doesn't that say something about where you're at spiritually? Look at what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. I just say this simply. Your adherence to Jesus Christ is not primarily tested by whether you can tick the doctrinal box or give all the right answers in the Bible study or can say amen at the right points during the sermon. Your adherence to Jesus Christ is tested practically by what you do, how you treat other people, how you give. And if in your heart you're saying, I don't want to give anything, I think that's saying a great deal about your need for a regenerate heart. I think it's saying your heart is dead and full of sin. And I think it's something for those of us who are believers that not to be induced by guilt, but to be induced by tears of repentance that we treat the Lord so lightly because we spend our money on what we love. Why do Christians of all people have to be bribed or cajoled or manipulated into giving? Of all people, we should be the ones who want to give all that we can. Our giving is willing. Secondly, our giving is according to what we have, not what we do not have. Some people have an excuse for giving. They say, what we give is so small, I'm just a a pensioner, I don't get much money. I'm not a millionaire. You give from what you have, you don't give from what you don't have. Now, those of you who are Marxists and who read the Communist Manifesto regularly uh, will know that Karl Marx lifted this. He lifted it actually out of the Talmud and also from Corinthians. In his critique of the Gotha program in 1875, he wrote down these words, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Well, that's a great principle of Christian giving. You know, communism is like capitalism and socialism and all the other isms. Be great if it wasn't for human beings. 
doesn't work if you don't take into account humanity and human sinfulness and humanity's need for God. But in the Christian church, it's from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Now let's think about what that means. First of all, it's got to be proportionate. All the believers, sorry, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Now, that's not teaching that we've all to live in a commune and all private property is abolished. By definition, as you read that, you know that that was a unique circumstance at the beginning of the church, not least because if they kept selling lands and houses, at some point they were going to end up not having any. That's how they got the church started, if you like. And there are times when I think that's a right thing to do. But the basic principle that's involved there is that you and I, what we have, what we own, we actually don't. We are stewards of it. It is from God and it is to be used for God's glory. And so we share. That's a, 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 just a standard principle. So you find later on in Acts, in Acts 11, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. They gave... There was going to be a famine. It was, Christians were going to be killed in Jerusalem. And much of the New Testament is occupied with Paul going around preaching the gospel, but also taking a collection for the Christians, particularly in Jerusalem, the poor in Jerusalem, who were going to find themselves uh, starving and hungry. Sometimes our giving is sacrificial. But the basic principle is that it is proportionate. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. He watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything all she had to live on. Our giving is according to what we have, not according to what we do not have. And as a basic principle, as a church, we need to accept and acknowledge that we are immensely grateful for the millionaire. And whoever you are, secret millionaire, show up. But we are immensely grateful for the millionaire giving their tithe. But we must be just as grateful, if not more so, for the pensioner who has no other source of income and for whom to give actually means that she will do without something. That's extraordinary giving, and that's far more valuable than the amount. 
Now that, those are two basic principles. But let's come to this one. Equality. Christian giving leads to equality. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. Now what's key in this? First of all, Paul is not saying he wants the people in Corinth who are generally richer than the people in Jerusalem, in the church in Jerusalem, to be made poor and the saints in Jerusalem made rich. That would just reverse the situation. He quotes from Exodus 16, 18, which was concerning the manna that fell from heaven. Large families gathered a lot, smaller families gathered less. The Greek word that's used in that translation is isotis, which means equality or justice. And that's a basic principle of Christian giving. Now, um, I plagiarized this from John Stott. He's got a wonderful wee booklet called The Grace of Giving, which I'll get some copies of for you. But it's very helpful. And he says this, this is not egalitarianism. It doesn't mean everyone lives in the same house, has the same wage, eats the same food. We're not clones. It doesn't mean if we go outside and you're driving a wee Ford Fiesta or something and someone else comes along who's driving a, uh, I don't know, fancy car, not a Porsche, let's not go as far as a Porsche, but I don't know, a Honda Civic or something like that. And, and you're with a Ford Fiesta and you say, wait a minute, whoa, 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 you've got to sell your car so I can trade mine up. Let's all have exactly the same car. That's fine when you're the owner of the Ford Fiesta until the person comes along with the old bike and says, hang on a minute, is it, does it mean that we've all to be exactly the same? No, it doesn't. It's not teaching that. I didn't even teach that in, in the New Testament church. Philip, for example, had four daughters who prophesied, but Philip's also owned property. It's not egalitarianism in that sense. Jesus says, if you've got two shirts, you give to the man who has none. He doesn't say, if we have shirts, we don't feel obliged to give to the man who, uh, to give five to the man who's got 10 if we've got 20, so that we can both have 15. We are not going to be sending the deacons around just checking on your wardrobe to make sure that everyone's got the same amount of clothing, the same amount of shoes, and so on. That's not what's being taught here. It's not egalitarianism in that sense. It must, however, include equality of educational opportunity. And Stott argues that the Christian church has always argued for education, that people may be able to reach their full potential. If you're an extremist Islamist, what's the point of teaching women to read and to be educated? Why bother? Because they're not going to do anything with it. If you lived in 17th or 16th century Scotland, what's the point of the farm worker learning to read and write? What are they going to use it for? But John Knox and the, the Scottish Church after the Reformation said, no, no, everyone has the right to be educated. And that's always been a fundamental principle in, in Christianity. We're saying everyone, the, our, our, that's why we teach our children. We're not saying that everyone has the same style or kind of education. But we encourage people to reach their full potential and education is vital for that. And also what Stott says is this, that equality does bring an end to social disparity. Let's take the example of a missionary. You go to a country that's relatively poor, should you go native and live exactly like the people you are working with? Is that even possible? 
Well, it'd certainly be wrong, wouldn't it, if you went to a country where people were incredibly poor and you flaunted your wealth. How are you going to communicate with people? The Willowbank Report says this, speaking on gospel and culture, said missionaries, and I would include in this ministers, should develop a standard of living which finds it natural to exchange hospitality with others on a basis of reciprocity without embarrassment. In other words, I'm happy to come to your house, you're happy to come to mine. If we are embarrassed to visit people in their own homes or to invite them into ours, then there is something that is wrong. There has to be an equalization either way. I watched again uh, Kiss the Water, the film about Megan Boyd, the fly tire from Brora, who Prince Charles often came to in her wee croft cottage. And, you know, it's, it's quite run down in some ways. And one of the men who's being interviewed on that said that when uh, Charles came, she made him sit on the same chair as everybody else. And he loved it. Treated with no special airs and graces. Well, in the Christian community, there's got to be that sense of equality. We don't do. James says, you know, someone comes in who's mega wealthy. You don't say, come and sit down at the front, have the special place, and we need to specially honor that person. No, we honor all people. The lady who I met this morning, she comes to church, she'll be honored as much as if the queen came to church. Now, that's basic, practical, and sensible Christian living. That's what Christian community is about. That's what fellowship is. Your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Right now, I could be doing well. You're struggling with some things. If I share with you, then a time will come when you'll be doing well, and you can then share with me. It's not communism. It's communion. It's koinonia. It's real fellowship. Now, I think an application here is that as society moves away from Christianity, because they don't have this motivation of the love of God and the love of Jesus, our society is going to become more unjust and more unequal. Chris is working with CAP, and we'll say more about that this evening. But one of the things that is horrendous is that in our culture, it's legal to charge people 5,000% interest. What do you do if you're poor and you take out a loan and you take, this is from a bank, you take it from a normal bank, you take a thousand pounds. This is a, a real example. And yet within 18 months, that's become three and a half thousand pounds. How are you going to pay that back when you took it out in desperation? The welfare state in the United Kingdom was founded upon Christian principles. If we move away from those principles, it cannot and will not survive. Now, whatever you think about the welfare state, it has to be the case that we have a welfare church. Not that we encourage a scrounge or entitlement mentality, but that those who belong to this church know that they're amongst family and family take care of one another. And that's a tremendous witness in the wider community. Now, I think another application here is, although this is about the local church, in this context, it's also about the whole church. Paul is urging the Corinthians to give to fellow believers that they did not know hundreds of miles away in Jerusalem. And we need to grasp and do that too. Now, I think there's a temptation that we might have. There are many Christians throughout uh, 
No, let me put it this way. Our minister's paid. Uh, we're covering our bills. There's no emergency. So why, why should we give more? We're doing okay. We're like the Israelites in Amos 6. We sit back. We say, we're, we're, we're doing all right. Thank you. But I think there are two reasons why our attitude to giving should change. One is what I'd call ecumenism, and the other is evangelism. True ecumenism is this. There are many Christians throughout the world who do not have our resources, and we must learn to share. Personally, I struggle with the government taking taxes of me and then using it to give aid to dictators or with strings attached seeking to enforce policies which I would regard as non-Christian. I'm really wary of people who use charity as a means to make money. I would never give money to any charity which pays as executives six-figure sums. And I hate with every ounce of my being Christians who use the gospel to exploit people and make money. It is beyond appalling. But the Lord has given us a system, church-to-church giving. It's the most efficient and effective way to help, and we need to be able to do it. I think about in our situation, by the time we've paid off our loan, we'll probably have spent a million pounds, and it's wonderful to have this building, but I couldn't care two hoots about this building if every brick fell down. It wouldn't bother me unless it's used for people to communicate the gospel to people. And once we've paid for that, do you think our giving should lessen? No, our giving, if anything, should increase. We can use that money to reach people with the gospel. The principle of this is we give, we receive. We give, we receive. Doesn't necessarily mean financially. Let's say we support a church in Burundi, or we support the work that's going on just now in Germany or a church is supporting us. The giving and receiving means it's just the whole body prospering and the whole body encouraging. It's not like we're the wealthy ones and we're the superior ones and we're looking down on you and giving you charity. It's just our Christian responsibility to share together. So in that sense, real ecumenicism and then evangelism. I read, I'm really enjoying reading a biography of Spurgeon just now and, and I don't mean this in an arrogant way, but I feel I identify a lot with Spurgeon. I don't have his gifts, but I identify a lot with his passions. And what happened was he was preaching the gospel. So many people were being converted, thousands and thousands and thousands. And he kept taking on more stuff. He started an orphanage for boys and a college for students and then an orphanage for girls. And the amount of work almost killed him. But his passion was in terms of the gospel. And listen to what he says about giving. No one knows the many cares which come upon us in connection with the work of extending our churches in needy districts. Large sums could be advantageously used, but they do not come. Our own purse is not spared, but the work is great and demands large, and yet not so large, but that a few wealthy persons could make it easy. We sometimes sink in spirit, and he he got depressed about this as we see how little the souls of men are cared for by those who call themselves the Lord's. If growing London is not provided with the means of grace, coming generations will blame us. As the Lord enables us, our utmost shall be done. If growing Dundee is not provided with the means of grace, coming generations will blame us. See, I would close this building down tomorrow if I thought it would help us reach 
poorer people in Dundee. I don't think it will. That's why I would argue against doing that. I think having the building can help us. But I'll tell you this. If it becomes an end in itself, if we become complacent, if we become self-satisfied, if we think, oh, we're doing okay, we're fairly full up, and isn't that great? Then we deserve all the condemnation that the prophets and the apostles made of the self-satisfied, rich church that refused to reach and to care and to share, to spend and to be spent. That's why we are here. We are here to give and to give and to give again. I'm very burdened by this in lots of ways. Every week I make a point just now to cycle through Charleston. And it was amazing the stuff that went on there over the Aspire project. But it was just scratching the surface. There are people who prayer walk. I cycle walk. But I keep my eyes open. It's, um, I challenge you to do it. I challenge you to go to places that are needier than where you're living. Or if you are living in a needy area. And just to, you don't even have the answer. But just to go and say, Lord, how can we reach these people? How can we communicate the gospel? You know what I've noticed in church planting? An awful lot of people go, well, we need to plant the church in the center of the city, and then we'll get the wealthy people, and then we'll be able to reach out. And you know this? They rarely do. And God will judge this church if after all the blessing he has given us in terms of people and in terms of finances and everything else, if we do not strive with all our heart and being to make sure that the gospel is proclaimed throughout the city and especially in areas where at this moment in time it is not proclaimed. It's a great investment. Proverbs 19, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward him for what he has done. Isn't that an amazing thing? When you're giving, you know what you're doing? You're lending to the Lord. How condescending in in a good way is God when he says, I'll let you lend to me my own money. You know, it's like a child, isn't it? Your child wants to buy you a present, so they ask you for money so that they can go and buy you a present. Well, that's lovely. They've thought of you and they bought you a present with your own money. That's what you're doing when you're lending to the Lord. You're giving to the Lord what is already his, but he's counting it as a gift from you. That is wonderful. Now, let me just apply all this and finish. There's, I guess there's a lot more that could be said, but in, when I think of equality, that's what I think of. I think of equality of opportunity. I think of equality of opportunity to hear the gospel. I love the fact that I know that in that Sunday school, we are so blessed with the teaching and the teachers and so on. And then I cycle through Charleston and I see kids who desperately need the gospel. And I just think, Lord, this is not right. It's not right. I don't want them to be taught some rubbish I don't want them just to, us to have a babysitting class. I want these children to hear the gospel. So the first thing in all of this is that we must give ourselves to the Lord. This is not an appeal for money. It's just simply an appeal that we give ourselves and we give our hearts, give everything to the Lord. Then you examine your heart. Then you examine your bank balance. And then you follow John Wesley's maxim, which is just wonderful. You earn all you can. Earning money is not a bad thing. Earn all you can. You save all you can. And you give all you can. 
See, our society says, yeah, yeah, get whatever you can, whether you earn it or not. Spend it as quickly as you can. Keep the economy going. And give what you've got left over. The Christian view is, you earn what you can. You save what you can. You give what you can. Now, some of us are going to need to go on a camp money course to learn how to handle money because we, we really haven't been taught that. But it's still a, a, for me, it's still a, just a basic thing to be able to freely lend to the Lord what he has lent to us or what he has given to us. I know I'm, I'm done, but there's two other types of equality that I want to finish with just to mention. And for those of you who are not Christians as well, please, please listen to this. There's a type of equality that's rarely mentioned. We are all equal in death. I will never bury anyone unequally. We are all equal in death. And that means that we all equally stand before God on the day of judgment. You can't buy your way out of that. You need yourself to be right with God and right with Christ. And you need to be ready for the day of your death. You don't need lots of money to be ready for the day of your retirement. You need to be ready for the day of your death, that it will be the day of greatest blessing in your life rather than the greatest curse you will ever face. And then lastly this, and I wish I had another hour, but I don't. We are all equal in Christ. If you are a Christian, we are equal in Christ. There's no male, no female. There's no rich, no poor. There's no Greek, barbarian, Scythian, as Paul says. We are all equal in Christ. In Christ just simply means this, that when God looks upon us, he sees Jesus. That we are in Christ, if you like, in the heavenlies. That all that Christ has done for us is applied to us. And some of you, if you're a Christian, some of you haven't got more of Christ than others. Some of you haven't, it's not that a little bit of his work applies, all of it applies. We are equal in Christ. Death, people say, is the ultimate leveler. I disagree. I think that Christ is the ultimate leveler. We are brothers and sisters. We don't have hierarchy. We don't have first class, second class, third class Christians. We are equal in Christ. As I said, doesn't mean that we're clones. Doesn't mean there's no diversity. Here's the thing. Our culture's mantra of equality and diversity will only ever really be shown in the church and will only ever really exist in the church. So I think what we've got to do is go out and spoil the Egyptians. We've got to take their language. We've got to say, yep, we're for equality and diversity, but you ain't ever going to have it. Sorry for the grammar. You're never going to have it without Jesus. And then I, I want to be able to say, come to church and you will see it. And I hope that that's true. I hope we don't discriminate against anyone because of their race or their gender or, or, or anything like that. I hope that it's true that you could have the, the pauper sitting beside the prince, that you could have the PhD educated sitting beside the illiterate, that you could have people from every different race and background. And the one thing that unites us is simply this, that we are here to worship Jesus Christ. And because we have that security, we give and we give and we give again. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have made us in your image and thank you for just how wonderful that is. 
Thank you that though that image is marred, yet you sent your Son, Jesus, that all who believe and trust in him are born again, are made new. And thank you for the equality that exists amongst us and the diversity. We have many different gifts, many different talents. Lord, yet you call us all to be part of the one body. We pray that we would see this developing more and more within the church so that we can show to the world what real equality and real diversity is. And grant, O God, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our wallets and our homes so that we would share and live for your glory. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.